2 Corinthians 4, verse 11. And then page 872 for our catechism lesson. Question 37. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 11 through chapter 5, verse 9. Our text is the last, most of the last paragraph there in the Pew Bible, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 9. So we'll read this, this wonderful passage and then focus just on a few, a few truths there in the last few verses. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 11. This is God's holy word. Please give your attention to its reading. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. With that, with that same spirit of faith we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of the Lord endures forever. Question 37. If you have that in front of you, let's read the answer together. It's page 872, the back of the red hymnal. Question 37. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory and their bodies being still united to Christ 
do rest in their graves till the resurrection. Last time we looked at the catechism a couple of weeks ago, we considered all of the the benefits that accompany those who have faith in Christ and justification and adoption and sanctification. One thing that that emerges from the the consideration of all of those things is that to live uh, believing as a believer in Christ and seeking to honor Him with our lives, it grants many things, many graces, many gifts of God that make the life of a Christian better uh, on earth than the lives of non-believers. Perhaps you've had the experience of Uh, That the peace that you have, the patience and suffering, the joy that comes from knowing that God accepts us in Christ becomes really striking to a a non-believer in your life or uh, perhaps even a less mature Christian. And how can you be so joyful, someone might say? How can you be, how can you seem so at peace with everything? That's not, of course, to say that uh, you're perfect if you're walking with the Lord, but What do we have for those who know Christ and who abide in Him? We have peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, the assurance of faith and God's love. All of these things overflow to those who commune with God uh, regularly and think about all that He has given to us. What we see from this is that though the life of a Christian is difficult in ways that a non-believer does not experience, it also carries many, many benefits that are unique to the Christian. There is no peace, no joy, no assurance that can compare to the peace and joy and assurance that comes with knowing Christ on earth. Uh, And that is certainly true. But the benefits that accompany death for the believer are where there really is no comparison whatsoever. Those who know the Lord know that there would be no other life we would rather live on earth. This is the life that we want in service to Him and knowing Him and seeing the way that His sovereignty unfolds in our lives. We know that. But at death, the differences are are not comparable. They're incommensurable, if I may use a, a big word. They cannot even be compared between the death of a believer and the death of a non-believer. The unbeliever has no benefits at death. That is where all the false hope ends. That's the, the reality that has been suppressed for so long will no longer be able to be ignored. Ecclesiastes 7 brings a lot of that into view. There the preacher, uh, considering wisdom from earth's perspective, this is why he says, In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. There is a wicked man who, who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Then often becomes a, a, a refrain in Ecclesiastes. It's better to die. It's better to be dead. To end your earthly life. Or perhaps it is better never to have been born at all. Something that you see in some of those darker wisdom passages. But we can read that first verse of Ecclesiastes 7 with resurrection glasses, can't we? or uh, Christ in heaven glasses, um, what theologians call the intermediate state when the souls of Christ go to heaven to await the resurrection. It was the Puritan Thomas Brooks who said that a believer's last day is his or her best day. I'm going to take a lot of the 
the structure from one of his treatises for tonight's sermon. I've kind of fill, I've filled it in with my own con, uh, content, but a lot of his points are just too good to pass up, so I'll bring a lot of them before you tonight. And if we are rightly informed about what awaits us at our death, for those who know Jesus, we can truly believe it and hold on to that hope. And without that hope, without this hope, the hope of, of Christ, the hope to be with him when we die, this world and this life is, is vain, it is absurd, it is extremely difficult to face without the hope of Christ. So that is what we must know, that the only life worth living on this earth is the life that lives to glorify God and knows Him in Jesus Christ. And the only death that anyone can really face with any honesty is the death for the one united to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith in his gospel. Solomon preferred his coffin to his crown because of the sorrows of his life. But we are to prefer heaven to earth because heaven brings us home. Heaven brings us to Christ. So the first idea tonight, really the the main thing we'll be focusing on and then making some application is why the believer's last day is his best day. Why the believer's last day is his best day. 2 Corinthians 5.8, Paul says, We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. He says, away from the body and at home with the Lord. So there are two different places there. Um, that he is talking about to be the body and to be with the Lord. Death brings us from a place of great sorrow to a place of great joy. It is a change of place. Brooks says this, he, the one who dies changes earth for heaven. He changes a wilderness for Canaan. He changes Egypt for the land of Goshen, a dunghill for a palace. Place is very important to us as people. We, we need to feel like the place where we live is home, that it feels right. Whenever I think about this, I, I think about when uh, Michelle and I were looking for my first call, and it began to become clear that I was probably going to be serving on the north side of the city for my first call as pastor. It's about 2015 or so. We were told uh, by the church that was going to call us that we should kind of take a day and explore the various neighborhoods of the north side, the northwest side, and try to find one where we could be uh, comfortable, try to find one that we could envision uh, living in and making our home, home. And if you know anything about kind of the neighborhood effect of Chicago, you know that one to another can feel quite different, and it can leave people feeling confused that they're trying to find a place to live in the city. We kind of started in the northwest corner of the city, in the farthest reaches of the city, and kind of decided we we're going to make our way down, kind of more and more towards Lincoln Park and kind of the heart of the north side as the day went on. We had several apartments we were going to check out, but it soon became quite obvious that Michelle was not comfortable at all, not feeling good about any of the places that we were in any of these neighborhoods. And I, I was thinking to myself, if I can't find something today that feels like home, for my wife. It's not going to work out. I'm going to need uh, to turn down this call. Thankfully, you know, towards the end of the day, we finally started to, to find some things that felt a little bit 
like home, and we, we found something that worked out, even if for a short time. But the point is, place is so important. We want to be in a good place, a place we feel good about. Heaven is, of course, the most desirable home we will ever know. Paul says in Philippians 3, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to think about heaven as going home. We need to think about it as the, the place for which our souls long, the place we were, we were made for, to truly enjoy our God in communion with Him. Hebrews 13 says, For here we have no lasting, lasting city. We are seeking the city that is to come. Death brings the believer home. And it will be a feeling that we will never be able to equal. It's a change of place from one to another. And that change of place is from a a place of great sorrow to a place of great joy. This earth is filled, compounds upon itself the sorrows that we experience the many difficulties that we have in all kinds of ways. In heaven, we will have none of that. It's a change of place from one to another. Death also brings a change uh, of company, as Thomas Brooks says. The people uh, with whom we share this earth will be changed. Hebrews 12, verse 24 says that, or verse 22 says this, You have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in feastal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better, a better word than the blood of Abel. Here you have this heavenly vision. Mount Zion. Uh, What will it be like? Who will be there? Who is there in heavenly glory? Well, innumerable angels that are praising God and who are constantly worshiping Him. To the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. To God Himself. To the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Those who have died in faith. Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. To go to heaven is to change company. To be taken from this world that is full of those who plot evil, who reject God, who live for themselves. If you've ever been around great evil, or if you've ever been around someone from whom you sensed great evil, you know how unsettling it is to truly sense evil in someone. Psalm 59, verse 2. Deliver me from those who work evil. Save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord. For no fault of mine, they run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. This world is full of people who will take advantage of you, mistreat you, will speak ill of you, there are no sinners in heaven. This is not only something to rejoice outwardly, but inwardly as well. And uh, certainly we seek to glorify God and live by his word. We trust in him to conform us to the image of Christ and uh, to grow in our knowledge and love for the Savior each and every day. 
But this point about the change of company ought to give us great comfort because we will be delivered from one of our great enemies, which is our own flesh, the principle of sin that is at work in us, that is seeking to bring us into disobedience, that is seeking to to manifest itself in our lives. And certainly this is something that ought to bring us comfort The catechism that we read tonight, it says this, The souls who die in Christ are made perfect in holiness. The joy of the death of the believer is to be set free from the inner battle against sin. For we need to wage war against sin all of our lives, every day of our life, every moment. And Paul considers this as he's thinking about these things in Romans 7. He says, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul, what he cries out for is deliverance from the the, the fallen man, from the effects of the fall on his mind, his flesh. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This, This tension this battle that we constantly are called to wage, this fight that we are constantly called to engage in day after day. That leads us into our our next point. We have the the change of company that, that, that everyone who is in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ is made perfect in holiness, and that gives us cause to rejoice mostly as we look inwardly, as we consider ourselves the foremost of sinners. But... Death for the believer changes our vocation because as we are called to live on this earth for the glory of God and for Jesus Christ, our vocation is soldier, fighter, uh, to engage in the spiritual war uh, that the Bible lays out for us. Ephesians 6 verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Engage in the battle, Paul says. He says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. To be a Christian is not to be living in peacetime. It's to be at war. And if you are fighting the battle well, you will often be weary. How long, O Lord, is often the cry of those who are engaging in this battle well, who are suffering in righteousness. Brooks, Thomas Brooks says this, The truth is the very life of a believer is a continual warfare, and his business is to be in the field always. They have to deal with subtle enemies, malicious enemies, wakeful enemies, and watchful enemies. With such enemies that threw down Adam in paradise, the most innocent man in the world. And Moses, the meekest man in the world. 
and Job, the patientest man in the world, and Joshua, the most courageous man in the world, and Paul, the best apostle in the world. We have these spiritual forces seeking to ravage the church, seeking to uh, divide the people of God, to turn us against one one another in in personal ways, in, in corporate ways, seeking to enter into our life through some temptation or trial. But when we are called to heaven, it is a change from war to peace. It is to get our discharge papers from the army. It is to journey home. When World War II ended, I, I wasn't around then, but uh, I've read that there were days of celebrations in the streets, really at least two entire days consecutively celebrating in the streets. We struggle to imagine how wonderful uh, it must have felt for those who were heading home, for those who finally set foot inside their house, uh, for that first time they sat down and tasted their first home-cooked meal. Uh, As I've studied a little bit of the history, there was a darker side to those celebrations. Men were waiting to kind of ship out from San Francisco and make their way home, and they kind of were getting impatient, and there's probably a lot lot of other um, immoral behavior going on, so there was a lot of riots and stuff like that. That's a reminder that uh, all earthly celebrations will fall short of what awaits us in, in glory. Uh, but it is a change of vocation to be enrolled and on the battlefield and then at your death to go from wartime to peacetime. It's a, it's a change in the nature of the rest that we experience. Here on earth, God gives us one day per week of rest, one day to rest, but really... Uh, Sunday brings no lasting rest from the spiritual battle we are called to fight. We still experience temptation on the Lord's Day. It's not kind of like the, the, the devil shuts down his operation and says, I'll, I'll respect the, uh, the 24-hour truce on, on Sunday. Sunday does not make the cares of the world disappear. Uh, there is assurance that uh, all of those things are ongoing and all of those things will be there for us tomorrow morning. Sunday does not make our sick loved ones healthier. It does not make broken relationships heal. Sunday does not bring our soul into its full enjoyment of God. We are always seeing in a mirror dimly. But heaven will be true rest. Our our souls will be satisfied to behold our Savior. We should long for that day because of the rest that awaits us. It's, uh, I'm not looking for pity or anything like that, but it's been about nine weeks, (laughs) uh, at least nine weeks, since I've been able to kind of decide, all right, it's time to go to bed now, and then you kind of saunter over, and you lay down in your bed, you close your eyes, and you drift off to sleep, and you wake up six, seven, eight hours later. It's been about nine weeks since I've had that that feeling, that experience. Time to go to sleep, and you sleep, and and then you wake up. There are times now where that's all that I want to do. I want to just drop everything and I want to just stumble over to bed and just fall in, close my eyes and wake up eight hours later. I'm yearning for it, right? We're waiting for that day when this tiny little baby decides that she's going to lay down in her crib for six, seven, eight hours and we can sleep too. I'm yearning for that rest. 
And we should yearn for the rest of heaven much, much more, for the glory that it will bring when we die. So if you weigh all of these things, heaven is a change of place. Heaven is a change in company. Heaven is a change in vocation. Heaven is a change in rest. You think of all of these things that happen upon the death of the believer, we would have to say that the day of your death, knowing Jesus Christ, is your best day. All of these changes are infinitely for the better. And this is only the beginning of the benefits. There are many more. Consider that your communion with God will be perfect. Your knowledge of Him will increase. Your enjoyment of Him will grow deeper and deeper. All of these things uh, bring us to the conclusion, what is the best day for a believer? It is in a way that confounds the wisdom of the world. It is in a way that uh, would make unbelievers almost tremble in fear. The best day for the believer is the day of his or her death. And we see that from Scripture. Paul says, we would rather be with the Lord. That doesn't discount the kind of pain that we go through in order to pass from death to life. It doesn't discount the grief that we feel when loved ones go on before us. But it is to hold on tightly to the hope that we have in Christ and to say, weighing all of these things in Scripture, that will be our best day. So, that's a simple point. The believer's last day is his best day. Let's make some application as we close tonight. The first is this, mourn like a Christian. Mourn like a Christian. Brooks says this, death is to the believer the greatest gain, and it speaks out much selfishness in us to be more taken with the gain and benefit that redounds to us by their lives than with the happiness and glory that redounds to them by their deaths. It doesn't mean, again, that we, we can't grieve. But there is a, a Christian way to grieve. If, if we convince ourselves that God has made a mistake because of what this person gave to us on earth, then we are not trusting God. We need to understand the kind of benefit that comes in death. And that if God decides to call home, that we need to trust Him. We need to understand that his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And so there's a Christian way to mourn, uh, even though mourning and grief is appropriate, for sure. The second is this. Do not fear death. Do not fear death. That we, in Christ, understand that the sting of death is gone. There are many things that should make us not fear death. The first is this. Death brought about the salvation that Christ gives to us. The greatest blessing we will ever know has come through a death. That Christ died for us. And knowing that something so wonderful and so great has come through death should give us assurance that God can work for us through our death as well. The second consideration is this. Our Heavenly Father controls our death day. It is, it is His to determine. And He is good, and He loves us, and He knows all things, and He is working on a canvas bigger than any of us can see, and one day it will all be made plain. But He is wise, and He is good, and He is loving. He is gracious and compassionate. He's a loving Father, better than any earthly father. He knows when we will die. 
He knows when he will take us home, and we trust that he will do what is right. Third, we don't fear death because we are complete in Christ. He has paid the price for us. He is a perfect savior. He doesn't get us halfway there. And he saves us, and he makes us to stand in grace, and he gives us a position before the Father, a position of assured salvation and eternal life. Because you are complete in Christ, you do not need to fear death if you trust in him. So mourn like a Christian, do not fear death. Third is this, prepare for your death. Prepare for your death. There's an ancient uh, theologian, pastor, really kind of the early part of the the medieval church that he uh, had an account of he was ministering to a a somewhat younger man who had become very sick and he was on his deathbed, uh, or at least it seemed to be that way. And and this was a a man who had really run from the Lord, hadn't served him and uh, had sort of rejected uh, serving God up to that point in his life, which many times is is the way of, of young men. Uh, but there he was, and the minister is trying to call him uh, to repentance, and this man refused. He said, I'm not going to repent on the, the chance that I recover. And if I make a recovery, I want to go back to my life of pleasure. You need to see the kind of vanity that it is to reject God and to reject his gospel, to not be prepared for what may come on a day you don't expect. So I seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. For we don't know the course of our lives. We must come to him in humble repentance. And then finally, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, make it your aim to please him. Make it your aim to please him. What, what, does, a, what does a heavenly perspective do? Well, one of the things that it does is it informs the motivation that you have for the time that remains here on earth. Whether we are at home with the Lord or we are away from him in the body, we make it our aim to please him. Everything in your life ought to come under the purview of that goal, that everything you do is to please your Lord. Everything you do is to please the Savior and your God. Uh, This is another work of Brooks that I really, really appreciate And perhaps I'm not a young man anymore, but when I first read it, it spoke to me deeply. It's a a call to young men to serve the Lord, to use your youth and your strength to serve Him. Don't put it off until you're older. And I'll read it for us tonight in closing, just so all of us can can be encouraged. He says this, Remember your Maker your creator in the days of your youth. For this is what scripture commands, Ecclesiastes 12. Remember your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. The command to serve the Lord here is not for the time of your youth, but for the days of your youth because our life is but a few days. It is but a vapor, a span, a flower, a dream. The philosopher Seneca said it well, Though death be before the old man's face, yet he may be as near as the young man's back. A man's life is like smoke's shadow, or like the shadow's dream. It's tough to decide whether to call it a dying life or a living death. Young men, God commands you to be good before most would expect you to be. Remember, young man, that it is a dangerous thing to neglect God's command. Is there any other being who could command you into nothingness? 
who could cast you into hell. To live against God's commands, even if you believe you have good reason to do so, is a fool's errand, and Scripture proves it. In 1 Kings 13, God sent a lion to eat a man who disobeyed God's commands. You probably think it will never happen to you, but all disobedient men will pay for their sin in this life or the next. I want you to think of every reason you have for disobeying God and living life for you instead of for Him. If you put every reason you can think of, even combine them with all the reasons any young man in this world could have, and put them on a scale weighed against God's authority and power of of your life, all your reasons would still be too light. Young men, you must obey God. You must start right now. Don't deny it. Don't delay it. Don't dispute because you think it's too hard. Pagan men used to do something that most men today also do. When the gods would demand that a man be given to them, they would offer a candle. Hercules, when demanded to offer up a living man, gave a painting. Don't you see the folly in this? When God calls young men to serve him in the prime of their lives, they usually put him off until their joints ache and their hands tremble, their knees buckle. But this is all bitterness. Use the strength you have. Use it now. Use it in the service of eternal things. God gave you a body, not for wickedness, but to serve him until your strength is no more. This will be a crown in your old age. May we all have the heavenly mindedness and vision of life to see that all, that this, all the strength that we have, when considered in life in light of heaven, in light of the best day that awaits us, which is the day of our death, that the strength that we have now ought to be used, every ounce, every bit, to please our Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the hope of eternity, the hope of heaven, that the souls of believers who die are made perfect in holiness and brought up into the presence of Jesus Christ, and there they await the resurrection. We thank you that because of this, we can be assured that the day of our death is actually our best day, even though we at times fear death, even though it makes us uncomfortable, uh, even though it brings great sorrow to those who remain. Father, without denying any of these things, we thank you for the treasure that we have in these truths. And we ask that you would impress them upon our minds and our hearts tonight. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.